Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. All right, here we go. Our first email is from Vivian of Santa Cruz, and uh, Vivian writes, colonoscopy after effects. Thank you so much for your radio program. I also plan to call in this Wednesday. I had a colonoscopy on January 13th. The doc removed two polyps. One was inflammation, so perhaps not a polyp. I felt okay right afterwards. And then on uh, January 21st, took psyllium fiber for the first time, doctor's recommendation. Presumably, Vivian has some constipation issues. I've never taken it before. Took two doses that day. Afterwards, I felt sick. All GI symptoms, nausea, constipation, shooting diarrhea Monday night, lethargic since then. I'm starting to feel better today, uh, about, let's see, the 30th, so it took her about seven days to come out of it, perhaps after taking Tums and a mild diet or not eating much since. I've never had GI problems, so it must be related to colonoscopy or psyllium. The doctor's office at PAMP would only tell me that it's not their fault, and they haven't been very helpful. I don't know what happened, but it wasn't fun, and I don't want to repeat it. I'd appreciate your input. Thanks so much, Vivian. Vivian. Well, first of all, uh, I often hear this complaint from people who have gone through a colonoscopy, and you know, the prep itself is very disruptive to the microbiome, Vivian, because... Well, we're going to talk a little bit about Miralax, which is uh, polyethylene glycol. You can buy it at, over the counter at the drugstore. And when you take the standard preps like Mobipep, you're, you're taking polyethylene glycol in a fairly large dose. It's a very, well, effective purgative. And that's the old-fashioned word for something that gives you diarrhea. The whole point is to clean you out so the doctor can see what he or she needs to see, which is to say your colon and not the debris that's in your colon. Things can hide under stool and we don't want to miss the whole reason we're doing this, which is to find a cancer or a precancer and get that thing out of there. But in, in fact, all bowel preps have the same technology, more or less, whether you're using magnesium citrate uh, or Miralax or enemas, they're all causing an osmotic shift, an osmotic shock, as it's called. So the, the inside of a bacteria has to maintain itself at fairly narrow concentrations, just like your cells have to maintain their chemical ratios at fairly tight concentrations. When you put extra fluid or extra salt into a solution in which there are cells, those cells can either shrink or rupture as they are essentially, well, whipsawed by the changes in the solute content uh, in that fluid. So uh, things can, can shrivel up and die or they can expand and blow up. And as you do that, of course, you kill off a lot of bacteria. Furthermore, the, os- the extra osmotic uh, pressure that you create inside your gut sucks fluid into your gut and causes you to have more diarrhea. And that's the whole point. You're basically doing a pressure wash of the colon so that anything can be found. But as you might expect, there are ripple effects. Now, in your case, 
I don't think that fits, but I do think that happens an awful lot to people. In your case, the timing is wrong, all right? You were actually doing okay after your colonoscopy, and it's usually within a couple of days that people go sideways if they're going to. Instead, I think you overdid on the cilium. And when I tell people to start fiber, I tell them, okay, take a look at the standard dose And don't take more than a quarter of that the first week because your microbiome eats that fiber. You're trying to get that soluble fiber to shift your microbiome. But if you give too much food, you essentially give your your entire microbiome a tummy ache. And it's not used to that stuff. And you'll get essentially germ warfare in the microbiome as you... It's sort of like a red tide. You get a bloom of certain things, and it disrupts the whole ecosystem, and it can take a while to settle down. Furthermore, if a person takes that much psyllium, and they aren't also compensating by drinking a ton, a ton, I might add, of fluid, they're very likely to run into problems because psyllium has an interesting property. It's good for constipation, but it's also good for diarrhea because it absorbs water. The problem is, if you don't have enough water for it to to absorb, it kind of turns into glue and clogs the colon. So it's extremely important to instruct patients to boot their water content and adjust themselves gradually so that they don't get into trouble when they take psyllium. Sounds to me like you probably plugged up, then unplugged, and eventually re-equilibrated, but It's obviously been a bit more of a ride than you bargained for. So that's my input, and I hope it uh, serves you and gives you some warning. Typically, think of it as that you just had an aggressive microbiome reboot. So now's the time to eat vegetable fibers, actual fruits and vegetables, and uh, maybe make your diet high vegetable content for a week or two while taking some fermented foods like yogurt and, uh, uh, sorry, uh, yogurt and sauerkraut and other foods that are fermented, kefir comes to mind, and maybe some oral probiotics, some capsules as well if you're having trouble eating those foods. But the idea is don't overshoot, don't take too much, don't take more than maybe 50 billion organisms a day. Uh, you don't need to get into, tr- you don't need to add more than that because they won't grow anyway. What you're doing is trying to set up a favorable environment, just like soil amendment before you do your spring planting. Okay, so Vivian wanted clarification on the dosage of uh, psyllium. Uh, so, quarter of the recommended dose. So, when you, uh, so what I meant was if you look at any fiber, it gives you a recommended range of dosing. Take that lower dose of the recommended range, you know, one to two tablespoons a day, uh, cut it in half, and then cut it in half again. And that's what you start with every day. And you work your way up. If you find you're gassy, stay at that dose until the gassiness subsides back down to your baseline. Gas and bloating is your indication that you're shifting your microbiome. And just like when you get your entire 
year's rain in a month when it, you know, massive, massive doses of things are not good for you. <laughs> They're hard to adjust to. And I, I hope that uh, we don't get any more massive doses of rain here because, quite frankly, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it. Please. Our next email comes from Peggy in Long Island, New York. Dear Dr. Don, thanks so much for all your previous answers to my email questions. I've already put many of your suggestions into action as I move forward post-op from stage one colon cancer. One thing you mentioned was to decrease stress, which admittedly I'm terrible at. And so I've been considering acupuncture for this purpose. I got acupuncture 15 years ago for herniated discs and found it to be very helpful. Understanding that acupuncture for my back was very physically specific, I wondered what you thought about me trying acupuncture for the more generic goal of decreasing stress. I know I also need to embrace meditation, but that too is something I've never been good at. Thanks again for your willingness to share all your knowledge and insight. Well, Peggy, one of the things that happens with acupuncture is you see an increase in spinal endorphins, encephalins, and endorphins in the brain, I should say. And these compounds are anti-pain neurotransmitters. And so there's other things that we're doing energetically when we treat back pain. But I think a lot of that lovely, floaty, relaxed sensation that you get, which to me reminds me of nothing so much as when I get a really good deep tissue massage and I feel sort of like melted butter lying there on the table and I don't even want to move. And the massage therapist always says, okay, drink plenty of water. And yes, then event I, I, I have, I did. And so now I do need to get up and move. Uh, and that's generally what drags me off of the table because it is so pleasant. That is all endorphins in my central nervous system doing that to me. In acupuncture definitely releases endorphins, and there are certain uh, treatments that are extraordinarily effective for that. One that I like uh, is the Ming Men. It's also called the Gates of Life. Any licensed acupuncture will know about that. Uh, another one that doesn't involve too many needles for relaxation. You don't need a lot of needles. Uh, but if a person is really depleted, uh, low energy, uh, older, I might give them the Ming Men first and then flip them over and do something called the Four Gates, also a protocol that all acupuncturists know. And at the end of that, I have yet to have anyone tell me that they didn't feel supremely relaxed. Uh, so I think it's pretty effective given how many of those patients looked when they came in. Now, as far as meditation goes, the thing about acupuncture is it's not very portable unless you become an acupuncturist. And even then, there's so many good points you can't really reach yourself. On the other hand, you can always reach your own brain. And if meditation is something you've had difficulty with, look into some of the biofeedback devices that are out there. My favorite, and I do not receive any compensation from them, is one from a, by a local company up here in Boulder Creek, California, called HeartMath. And, you know, I always describe them as a bunch of uh, 70s hippie psychologists who uh, decided to build a program that helped people get into the zone of meditation. And it does that by 
making you breathe very slowly in a rhythmic fashion and focusing your attention on your chest and your heart and your breath. And as you do that, you actually create an entrainment, a a sort of wave that changes your, uh, your heartbeat. It changes it through the brain. And as you as you increase the parasympathetic tone in your brain, the parasympathetic tone comes back down the vagus nerve from your diaphragm, which you're controlling, and relaxes the heart. The heartbeat drops into a pattern that is resonant with your breathing, and the brain just blisses out. It takes some practice. But the nice thing about that is after you've trained in it, you really don't even need the breath, the the device. You can breathe that way on your own. You've learned how to do it, and it's extraordinarily re- relaxing. And I quite, quite recommend it. I thought uh, I should answer this email. This one was from an anonymous caller. It's anonymous emailer, and it said, uh, and it had a link to uh, think something in Nature News from last week. Uh, about and asked me what did I think about this, and it said, antidepressants help bacteria resist antibiotics, and I thought, well, that's really different. Uh, we've we've always thought that giving antibiotics to people could cause resistance, and certainly the antibiotics that use in animal feed, the overuse of antibiotics in situations where, well, you know, it might help and it won't hurt. Well, maybe it will hurt. And so we're trying to break an entire generation of doctors from those just-in-case antibiotics for what is probably almost certainly a viral sore throat, for example. A person coughs up some green goo, they want antibiotics. Talking them out of it takes way longer than writing the prescription. But we really need to be better stewards of our antibiotics because it's getting harder and harder to discover new ones. And, you know, something like 1.2 million people globally died of antibiotic-resistant organisms, and that's only going to go up. So the researcher in this case is Gianna Guo, who works at the Australian Center for Water and Environmental Biotechnology at the University of Queensland. Somehow I think that's a place that does wastewater research, but this is not, strictly speaking, wastewater. Guo's uh, team was looking at other drugs to see whether they could also uh, affect antibiotics. And what they discovered was that antidepressants, which are among one of the most widely uh, prescribed medicines in the world, killed or stunted the growth of certain bacteria. They provide a uh, kind of SOS response, and they trigger cellular defense mechanisms that in turn make better bacteria better able to survive subsequent antibiotic treatment. What's going on with that? And I want to emphasize this work was done in vitro, was done in the test tube, and it isn't necessarily going to be true in bodies for a couple of reasons that we'll come to in a moment. So when you see this flash through the news cycle, realize that you don't want to stop your antidepressants if they're helping you, and and you definitely don't want a cold turkey off of them because... Some of them can cause some very unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. But what they found was, at least when there's a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere, the antidepressants 
cause the cells to generate something called reactive oxygen species. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me talk about that. Think of like sparks in the blacksmith shop. These are sparks. They can burn holes in things, including DNA. And they can burn holes in the DNA of the bacteria. So they're toxic molecules. And the bacteria's defense mechanisms uh, are called efflux pumps. And they pump out the molecules that they don't like inside of them. This is super important. We were talking about osmotic stress. This is how you survive osmotic stress is when that salt gets into your cells, you pump it out as fast as it gets in so that you can maintain those molecules uh, or atoms where they need to be. So the bacteria don't have resistant genes necessarily to the antibiotics. They just gain the property of pumping the antibiotics out of themselves before they can do what they're supposed to be doing, often acting on on the production of the cell wall, for example. So the first thing to understand about this is that most of our gut bacteria isn't in highly aerobic oxygen conditions. They're actually in the in the uh, colon because anaero- these are anaerobic bacteria. These, you know, our gut flora is largely soil bacteria. And down there, there's not enough oxygen to make as many reactive oxygen species. So while antibiotic resistance does develop, it develops much more slowly, probably over many weeks as opposed to just several days. Another study, however, showed that one antidepressant, sertraline, actually promoted the transfer of genes between bacterial cells, a process called conjugation. And folks, this might mean that if there were several bacteria in the mix and one of those uh, species had a resistance gene, it would be prompted to share that resistance gene with the other bacteria in the neighborhood, triggering essentially a problem. What's going on here? Well, a change in the environment triggers a change in what DNA is being uh, transcribed because it is an adaptive response. And you're giving them something to adapt to, and they adapt, and there are downstream unintended consequences to that adaptation. So there's a lot of medicines, not just antidepressants. Uh, one group in 2018 surveyed 835 medicines that were not antibiotics, and they found that at least 24% of them inhibited the growth of at least one strain of human gut bacteria. So there's lots of unintended consequences from drugs. And of course, we know that polypharmacy is a bad idea just on, well, on the general principle that it's mathematically impossible to predict the interactions of three drugs, let alone the five to seven that the average person in their 70s is taking. And we are afraid to take drugs away from people because if they get sick or die after you've removed a drug, that's going to be blamed rather than the fact that they were frail and uh, got a cold. You know, you are going to be potentially as a doctor afraid of being blamed for the person's death when in fact that was a neutral action. It just happened to be taken, you know, three days before they died. So that must be the cause. That's how the human brain works, right? Now, there are lots of antidepressants found in wastewater. And so you might wonder, is that going to be a problem? But actually, the levels in wastewater are fairly low, below that which causes these effects in bacteria. So for the most part, I think this is non-news. It's interesting in its uh, implications about 
well, the fact that any drug is uh, going to require potentially adaptation on the part of everything that's exposed to it. But we sort of knew that. I mean, our whole process of breaking down drugs and our reaction, in fact, to vitamins, a lot of uh, nutrients, bioflavonoids, resveratrol, curcumin, all of these, these are reactions that are designed to improve uh, the body's ability to tolerate an environment with resveratrol in it. But along the way, it makes changes that are favorable to your health. So we're going to do a quick one. Uh, this a uh, rethink on asthma. When coronavirus first appeared, many doctors worried that the pandemic would be especially perilous for people with asthma. Uh, but, you know, I, I was one of those people. I have asthma. I was really kind of terrified going into the hospital. But I'm like, I'm okay, I already thought this through. I'm going to do it. I'll wear my mask. I'll wash my hands. I'll do the thing. Uh, but, you know, that's the oath. And so, by the way, all of those people who stuck it out in the hospitals and continued working, everyone from the person emptying uh, the garbage cans, the people doing the laundry, and of course, the doctors, nurses, and technicians, that was an act of, of sheer courage to do that. It was scary. So a new study basically showed something about asthma that is really very unexpected. And we had the natural experience of COVID, what we call, I call a natural experiment, to show us. 1,200 asthma patients found that the number of attacks by participants during lockdowns fell about 40%. And this was interesting because a lot of us thought, doctors thought that allergens in the home, like pets and secondhand smoke, would be a big part of asthma. And so locking someone in the winter in their house we were expecting an uptick of asthma, but actually we saw a major drop. The The drop was largest among people who normally work outside the home. So what it really means is that asthma is often triggered by a low-level cold or flu that doesn't even manifest as a viral infection. It's just the act, the, adapt, the adaptive act of fighting off the infection that releases chemicals that trigger the hypersensitive nerves in the airway and set off the asthma attack. Well, we now have proof positive that uh, the asthma rates and the asthma in the ER visits for asthma actually dropped substantially. I'm not sure what we do about that, except maybe if you're wearing, maybe it becomes politically correct to wear a mask in the winter and we don't have to worry about that. And people with asthma can just, wear a mask at the supermarket and wear a mask at the movie theater and avoid having to go to the ER with an asthma outbreak because they weren't being looked at weird. I really hope that mask wearing becomes socially acceptable and stays that way and isn't seen as a political act and just seen as what it actually is, an act of generosity and self-preservation. We've gone through the emails and now uh, just a little something to remind you that uh, a little heavy lifting might be even more important than adding another mile to your run. Uh, strength training is finally coming in, into its own. Uh, when you exercise, strength training or resistance training makes your muscles work against a force or a weight, well, like gravity, but 
a recent meta-analysis looking at over, um, well, 16 studies, over 1.5 million subjects, muscle strengthening activities were associated with a 20% lower risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, lung cancer, and all-cause mortality. So this is independent of doing aerobic exercise, which is really great for your cardiovascular system, aerobic exercise. But muscle uh, muscle resistance exercise actually does more. You get some added benefits. Among other things, it increases bone mineral density, and it actually reduces your risk of injury because your muscles are able to protect your tendons and your ligaments. Running and swimming and playing soccer and other aerobic, that's great, but they don't do that much for overall muscle uh, strength. So perhaps more important for health, studies have found that strength training improves the body's resistance to insulin, more muscle tissue, more uh, tissue to eat the sugar, right? And so it leads to better control of blood sugar after meals because those muscles just suck it up. And when that happens, they pull it out of the bloodstream so you don't get insulin resistance. Uh, Obviously, insulin resistance is pro-inflammatory. It's going to harm the heart and it's going to increase arterial plaque formation, which will further harm the heart. So you're in a bad loop there. Skeletal muscle exercise produces myokines, which are small strings of amino acids, and these are released by muscle. They go through the rest of the body, and they help uh, creatinine phosphokinase is, uh, is one of them. They help regulate various metabolic processes. They actually change the way the other parts of the body work. Bacteria communicate with each other, ants communicate with each other, and muscle cells communicate with each other. And our own body cells are in constant dialogue, not just through the endocrine system, but through small, tiny little molecules that we're even just now beginning to appreciate. There's a lot of crosstalk there. Uh, Also, research has, has shown that strength training protects the hippocampus. That's the area of the brain that is normally targeted by Alzheimer's. Just yesterday, I had a patient in the office who has cognitive impairment. And one of the things that happened with this patient was during COVID, they deteriorated quite a lot. And they hadn't really been even uh, showing any evidence of cognitive decline, or at least not perceptible to the family, prior to COVID. Now, COVID took away a lot of stimulation. It changed our behaviors. In the case of this person, they stopped going to the gym, which was both the social outlet and a physical outlet for them. I think losing that gym work could have definitely taken away one of the things that was protecting that person's brain. So I advise them to get back into doing strength training in a safe fashion and That was advice, as I said, I gave that just yesterday because the data has been out there for a while and it's only getting stronger. This latest meta-analysis only serves to strengthen our awareness of this. As I mentioned, ants communicate with each other. We probably know that ants leave a, a scent trail that other ants can follow. And I'm sure most of us have seen the bee dance and we know how bees dance with 
dance in the hive to show the location of a new pollen source close to the uh, in with reference to the sun. Pretty amazing stuff. Well, a study published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society Biological Sciences showed that ants can actually be trained to smell out cancer. Now, this was a weird study. I, I love weird studies. Kind of a Dr. Moreau thing. They grafted pieces of human breast cancer tumor onto mice, and they trained 35, different, uh, 35 ants to associate urine from the tumor-bearing rodents with sugar. So there was sugar uh, in the in the location, and that smell was there. Then the ants would move towards the sugar. Okay. And uh, so they spent significantly more time near tubes with urine from the sick, uh, from the sick mice with, compared to the healthy ones. So what this tells us is that we might not just have cat scans, we might have ant urine scans, and how cool would that be? Looks like we've got a caller. I'm going to try to pick them up. Hello, you're on the air. Oh, hello. How's it going? Hi. So you, um, what's your name Hi. and where are you calling from? Oh, John and Santa Cruz. Okay, John. What can I do for you? Well, I wanted to ask you a question, not necessarily medical-related, but it's just something that I'm being exposed to because I'm living in a new house. I was told by one of the people that lived there that, that you know, what was going on in that place before, uh, you know, there were some funny things, you know, and I don't know what the funny things were, but I, I feel that uh, there was something that he was, some kind of drugs the guy was doing in there. I, I don't know if he's doing math or heroin or speed. I don't know what the heck he's doing, but I, my question is, is there things that I can do to, like, get out that stuff in the but either be like cleaning the walls, I guess every just really a good cleaning, or, or what would be the best to make that house, uh, you know, nicer. Uh, yeah, exactly. Make it less toxic. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn yeah. you down because we've got some background noise, and then I'll when I stop talking, I'll I'll crank you back up because the it's hard to hear you. So, um, so basically, what I was gonna say is that without knowing exactly what was that the guy was doing. But let's assume for the sake that he was cooking, it would depend on what he was making. And because different materials have different properties, there's a a lot of solvents that are involved, for example, in meth. And those solvents can penetrate into the, the space. If I was going, if I needed to live in a place where uh, I was worried that the environment was contaminated, and certainly I'd encourage you to, you know, make that a temporary location, I'd probably get myself an electric blanket and leave the windows open and and just do as much ventilation as possible uh, to the extent that I could. If I could afford it, I'd get an air purifier, something with an ozonator in it, and I'd change the filters frequently. Sometimes I'll see the old HEPA, the old Honeywell HEPA filters uh, for like 20 bucks at a thrift store, and those are pretty good in the, and the filters are cheap. And you can score those. You can score them for like fifteen bucks for two two filters on Amazon. So it you can so you can use something like that. You want to clean your air, 
And just wind, if you can have two windows on either side of a space and the wind is blowing through, that's good. But then you have to try to keep yourself warm and not die of hypothermia in the Santa Cruz winter. It gets pretty cold out here. So, you know, there's that to be considered. Also, the carpeting. If it's possible for you to pull, get rid of the carpeting and paint the floor with just uh, boat paint, deck paint, and you can pick that up sometimes at the dump, actually. Uh, You can get free paint and just something, you know, look for boat paint or deck paint on there. And that seals, and it's a pretty good surface. And you want to, you basically want to seal the wood if you can, and you want to absolutely get rid of carpeting. And, you know, if the mattress is, if that's not your mattress and you didn't bring it in with you, you need, okay, good. Because it's the soft absorbent stuff that's going to take on the toxins, right? And you want to keep, okay, so you want to keep it clean. You want to keep it, uh, you want to clean it out as much as possible. Definitely go around the the floorboards, you know, because there's a little ledge there. And when they study mold, like if they're looking for mold um, in a household, they'll go to the center room and put the mold detector if they've been hired by the landlord. And they'll go to the corners and get the floor and get the, um, the, the little floorboard, not floorboards, I forget what they're called, the little things that sit on the side of the wall. Uh, that, yeah, those things, just, you want to clean those really well, because the stuff accumulates there, okay? But that's true for mold, but it's also true for these nasty particles. We're going to have to roll, I hope I've helped right. you. No, it helped me, and it, it, it helped me too, because uh, I, I had had the windows open pretty good. Good. On it, so All right. Well, I you sounds like you're on it, too, and you're, you're being careful. Thanks for the call, and uh, hey, thank you too. keep listening. Bye-bye. You may have noticed that unlike most podcasts, we have not monetized our site. We have no advertisers or appeals for money. I have always considered both my radio program and this podcast part of my community service. But just this once, I'm going to ask for some help. My home base radio station, KSQD, has a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity within our grasp. We are close, so close to reaching our financial goal to purchase two additional radio licenses and expand our listenership drastically. We will be reaching over half a million ears, that is to say 250,000 people, if we succeed. The commercial radio station that currently operates these frequencies just rebroadcasts cookie-cutter commercial material. We dream of bringing back local community radio to the entire Monterey Bay. Our station is all volunteer and incredibly eclectic, like an old 1970s college radio station. From the overserved to the underserved, we hope to bring many different voices to our radio footprint. California's had its share of disasters in the last few years. Believe me, when the power is out and the trees are down, or for that matter, burning, Radio is a lifeline to the population. Help us continue our community service. Help us by going to ksqd.org and making a donation by credit card or PayPal. Thank you so much for considering my request. This is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at 
Ask Dr. Don. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.